Don't gobble funk around with words. You're listening to They Came From The Silver Screen. Each week, myself, Josh Tregenza, and my co-host, Damien Danaher, pick a film to watch, discuss it, the questions, plots, and themes surrounding it. Damien, how are we this evening? I am sick as a goddamn dog, mate. How are you? Uh, not as sick, but, you know, feeling... Feeling, feeling good, feeling good. I guess I like am funky fresh feeling, as as always. Feeling, feeling fine. Hmm, <laughs> that's unsettling. Yeah, I'm as congested as a schwabble goop. And all of and all of that. I'm schwabbled in my schnozzle wazza. My father is like British and all of that, so like he, like he'd still do, like he doesn't have the accent or anything anymore, but he still does throw around like Englishisms, like. Off like Austin Powers English, and all English, that, yeah, yeah. And it's like, so <laughs> it's hard to pass out. I was like, is this actually like an Englishism that, like, you know, is is happening on this in this film, or is it like legitimately just just nonsense words? See, I haven't read the novel in a long ass time, so I actually gave up trying to work out what was actually a colloquialism and what was uh, endemic to the novel itself and actually just went along for the ride. Mm. I well, I think that's one of its, I think that's one of its, uh, like the, the book and, and the film's uh, most endearing qualities is the fact that it is, uh, it does have these outlandish words and, and uh, in imagery. Um, and of course the film that we're talking about is uh, the BFG. Mm-hmm. Directed by Steven Spielberg, working for Disney. Strange, isn't it? That was really strange. Like I was off the off the bat. I was like, I, I didn't like, it didn't comp- I didn't comprehend the fact that this is a Spielberg Disney film. I was like, this doesn't this doesn't sit right. Surely that would have been like DreamWorks if yeah, he was going to make because- it. That's his. <laughs> exactly. Wouldn't you just stick within your own house? But yeah. Uh, no, I guess not. I guess, I mean, like, who, who am I to, like, interrogate the intricacies of uh, distribution markets and the, you know, negotiations that go between them? But, yeah, no, I agree. It was very strange to, to see him helming a Disney movie. I don't think mm. I'd ever thought I'd see that. Like, the closest would be, like, the closest I thought we would get would be, like, a, you know, a Lucas Indiana Jones film. Mm. Well, like that would be well, as close as yeah. we get because, well, you know, at the Star same Wars time, I don't think any of us ever expected that we'd see uh, a Disney logo in front of a Star Wars film. So, you know what? It's a brave new world. Indeed. And I think we all just need to, you know, buck up and, you know, just put on our big boy pants and yeah, just, just saddle up and deal with it. Yo, that was, a that whole, was a whole lot of, uh, <laughs> idioms in a row oh yeah well it's, well that that was uh, our generation's the new deal mm. I think I, I think it's the Cody <laughs> talking to be honest oh blessed blessed so uh so yeah I'm blessed um, oh oh he needs to be in more things why was he not in a movie about giants I mean I'm just gonna put that out there right yeah. now 
The mean, man is a giant of a man in like he didn't, in he everything didn't that the, he stands for. He didn't need for. to do the mocap. He could have just done the voice. Yeah. Oh, that man is like custom built to be a giant in a movie. The only problem would be he was that, in crawl. I mean, I don't know. Like that was crawl was a weird film. Well, I mean. You won't get any disagreements from me on that, but I mean. It was a the, weird, bad film. Look, the idiosyncrasies of Krull can be left for an entirely another day and indeed possibly another podcast series. <laughs> that's that's a rabbit hole that I don't even vaguely want to go down <laughs> this week, let alone this year. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, so um, the BFG, um, of course, is uh, the story of Roald Dahl. Mm. Um, Isn't it I, weird? Is it is it the story of Roald Dahl, or is it the story? Uh, by, well, by I, I feel Dahl? I feel that that the before the war he had a he had a bit of a dream weaving uh, time, you know, snatching mm. children. Then he had to. He then he was drafted. <laughs> yeah. Had to, had to leave all that dream snatching behind. You know how it is. Yeah, that was you know that was uh, oh, that was his old, old Johnny Kraut comes knocking. You got to leave that dream weaving behind. Go do I what's mean, needed, really. what you need to do for your nation. <laughs> yeah, that was the no one. No one understood that uh, when he was doing uh, you know going solo and uh, oh, what's the first one. Because he did, he did, he he legitimately did do a bunch of um, bunch of stories about his life as a boy, and then going solo was him as a as a man. I can't for see, the life of me think of it. See, I don't. I haven't read any of his stories in. I would say going on a decade now, mm. and I, so I'm curious to see, or you know, what the audience for this movie would have actually been. Was it for people like us who? Ready stories growing up and then nostalgia seizes upon you and you go and see the movie and get thrilled by the interpretation of the story that you know or they were they actually just assuming that like no one of the child demographic would actually know what the story was and they were just well, trying to that's this that's the strange thing about it because you know this movie starts off and it's like it's dark as fuck mm. Like it doesn't like it. It's still it's, it's pretty dark the whole way through. Yeah. Probably about until like uh, the dream tree bit. Well, it starts getting like okay with it. Like the premise old, of this, it's, it's old school Disney. Yeah, you look at most. But of the even old then, Disney, there was like you look at most of the older Disney movies. A lot of people die in those old animated films. Well, they die in it, but there's always that sense of um, of levity um, towards like the uh, the main character's life, where it's mm. like, you know, she's an orphan with insomnia. It's yeah. like, and then she sees like they a kind of hit the ground running because I mean, usually a Spielberg film has a main character with parental issues or familial issues, and usually yeah. it's usually it's usually it's a single parent. Mm. to Tamira Spielberg's own life that most of his like movies, especially in the eighties were a dysfunctional family or a family where a parent had left or something like that. And even, even in like, you know, well, uh, war of the worlds in 2005, you saw that, you know, mm. it was again, the splintered family, but 
he went he went right for the fields, just like fuck it, you don't get any parents in this one. Which I, yeah, I just mean, cut we, out we, the middleman. Which obviously at the same time is you know the source material the source material so i mean like it's not like he went in and said you know this role dahl you know he always has like these brutal appraisals of childhood and tales of magic where nothing good ever happens yeah he's not being he's not being on the nose enough so you know what orphan yeah page one orphan roll dahl is like the the logical step of uh of dickens Mm. or just like (laughs) make Worst case scenario, let's put like fantastical things in it. See, Dahl was always an interesting author because, by all accounts, he uh, from things that I've read in the past and interviews or whatever. Uh, anyone who talked to him, apparently, he was an asshole. Oh yeah, well, he was like he was up there with you know Ian Fleming on like assholeness. <laughs> That's why like, they like swapped. They like did another book for an, for the other. Yeah, which at the same time is why I kind of can understand why children loved his stories so much. Mm. It was because he was an adult that had the utmost disdain for adults. Yeah. And that carried through into his stories where the children were always the heroes and they were always smart. The adults were morons and grotesque and, you know, the villains in every way, shape and form. And so... At the same time, his stories were, you know, they didn't shy away from the grisly stuff. And so yeah. I think that's why he is still around in terms of being respected by younger younger audiences, children, et cetera, is because people, you know, kids read those stories and they intrinsically understand that he is not condescending to them. Mm. And he was one of the few children's authors that, that didn't condescend to his uh, base audience. Yeah. Well, I've st- like, I still have. So by, by the way, for any of the listeners who uh, were scratching their heads of what uh, the prequel to going solo was about uh, Roald Dahl as a boy, it literally was called boy. Helpful. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. Not to be, not to be uh, um, misconstrued with Danny, uh, the champion of the world. Which uh, that was a good that was a good book as well, and that was pretty steeped in reality. Single parent, mm-hmm. I was a single parent uh, and pheasant pheasant hunting and all of that. Yeah, but yeah, like I read a bunch of Roald Dahl stuff. You know, Revolting Rhymes, Mr. Uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, James the Giant Peach. Like, and then like all of them got picked up as um, no films and all of that. I'm pretty sure even uh, Danny was uh, picked up as a film back in the early nineties. Mm. So, but then there was like the, um, yeah. And of course, you know, Charlie and chocolate factory and, um, and all of that, you know, probably his most famous, um, book. I'd say so. And I mean, I certainly would hold that the, uh, Gene Wilder adaptation is the, uh, definitive, Oh, absolutely! Yeah, definitive, definitive version. But even except this movie, no substitutes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, but even this movie has uh, been adapted once before into an animated film back in nineteen eighty nine. Yeah, which I which I vaguely recall. But I suppose in terms of uh, live action, in the past, certain 
shortcuts were made. I mean, in James and the Giant Peach, they went into the kind of the stop motion uh, animation for the more fantastical elements of the movie. Mm. And then reverted to uh, realism for the the final bits kind of to bookend the film as it were. And the witches, which is another one, which I remember Angelica Houston and everything like that. Again, that was a long ass time ago, but I can't remember exactly how they animated the witches, but I'm sure there was some trickery involved. I think they were just waiting mm. for the, the ability you know, I, I sort of treat this movie in the same way that, like, James Cameron basically laid in wait to put Avatar on the screen. Like, he knew what he wanted to do, but he knew he couldn't do it yet. And I think that's basically the, the same token with this movie, that having now seen it, I can't imagine it being done any other way and with any other actor except Mark Rylance. Yes. Ah, oh, okay. So the, so the two main characters are fantastic in this film. Mm. Like they hold it, well, like they, most of the film is, has either of them in shot and they're fantastic. I can't, so um, um, I need to pull up all of my, my notes now. Well, I mean, it was Ruby Barnell. Yeah, so uh, Ruby Barnell. Sophie, and she's done nothing else except mm. this movie. Which is okay, no, how? How? She's fantastic. She exudes such such force on screen, and it's it, it is amazing what uh, she she the, was the able to the do. Only, the only way I can possibly like justify it is the sheer fact that she had no experience meant that she brought this naivety that fed perfectly into the, the child character that like she was required to play. Mm. That's the only way I can possibly justify it. Or she's just naturally amazing. Yeah. I, I, you know, and she was incredibly charismatic on screen. Exactly. And it was, just beautiful and it was a movie that I haven't seen a movie like this in a while where I actually haven't been able to work out how they would have filmed it because um, how do you, how do you how do you mean by that because I, I mean I mean in the sense that in every I mean you look at movies like Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit mm-hmm. or things like that where you know, someone's a human and someone's a, a, a hobbit or a dwarf or something like that. And so you do a fixed perspective shoot where, you know, you'll shoot with uh, shorter actors or like in The Hobbit, you'll shoot with the people who are meant to be short in one scene and then you'll shoot with the people that are meant to be tall in another scene and you'll basically just uh, layer the two takes over together. But in scenes where it uh, required like, you know, a giant or something like that or a troll, those were always very small scenes and they weren't very long. Mm. But for a film like this and for the height discrepancy that this film especially has, you know, I just, I, I, I can't, I don't know 
and I'm fascinated to find out how they actually filmed it. Were they in the same room at the same time? Did they actually just film it together and Yeah, like was uh Rylance in a in a green in a in a green morph suit mm. like on a ladder uh acting alongside uh Barnhill. Yeah. Because she must like, have done a lot of stuff on her own. Yeah. So like yeah like, so on, exactly on, how much of um her acting was basically to nobody. Yeah, doing the you know doing the Ian McKellen of yeah you know exactly Ian McKellen acting to flashlights basically. She sits on a green cube and talks to nobody, and Mm. someone holds up a little ball and says this is this and that's that and everything like that. I I I can't fathom that the the intricacy of it is is just beyond me because in every single scene they look like they're in the same room together there is such chemistry between them and to be honest i can't work out how mm. yeah it is <laughs> it's so this film like is very much spielberg doing his thing like it mm. does look like it looks impressive. Well, it's like, it's it's the same it's the same crew he has on every single movie. Movie, sorry, it's Janusz Kaminski mm. as his cinematographer, who's been the cinematographer on almost every single one of his movies. You know, Michael Kahn, who's been editing his movies for a long ass time. Uh, you know, Williams, of course, providing effortless musical accompaniment yeah like you almost don't need to comment on this because you know with the spielberg movie you're going to get a quality williams score that's just going to absolutely complement the action i feel though i feel that i actually will make comment on williams in this because it it feels out of place for a dull for a dull story Mm, like he seems he seems far more ethereal um, and majestic than like a dial thing, which does kind of uh, lend itself to more of a uh, like a folky sort of sound, mm. like a, a little more wooden and not industrial sort of like out of out of noise sort of thing, but kind <laughs> of along that along that uh, along that path of more upbeat, off kilter sort of thing. Um, rather than a, a big orchestra. Yeah, sure. No, I, I understand what you mean. Like, who, who do you reckon? Who do you reckon would have should should have been there instead? I couldn't. I can't think of of someone who would kind of fit that. Because I, I do. Because I do understand what you mean. Yeah. In terms of um, uh, the the epic and translucent nature of the score kind of been slightly removed from the 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 down to work the sort of folksy nature of the the story and of the character mm. of the bfg himself mm. yeah so it's like it that does seem that that kind of got to me particularly when you're like you're using all of like the outlandish um idioms that the bfg has mm. um it does set, it does, it just doesn't fit 
fit well together. But it's, and I think that's, I think that that's what I have. I'm taking issue with this film in watching because it's like it's a good film, but it's just it seems like everyone's just doing exactly what they do. Right. Not necessarily playing to what this story um, almost um, expects. I suppose the uh, operative question to ask then is, was Spielberg the right director to make this movie? And that's like – that's the, that is that is the question. Like he can, like he can do a fine film, and but is it was he the best pick for it? Because this this film, like you know, as we kind of set up top, like who is this? Who is this for? Is it for you and I, who have read mm. the books as as children? Is it for um, is it for children nowadays to go see it, um, or is it you know is it for the parents who? will drag their kids along to it, you know, during, you know, during the summer. Like, and if that's the case, is it just a, is it just a filler film? Like a good filler film, but is it just mm. a filler film? And that's what, that's what I'm kind of like grappling with. Cause it's just, I, I don't know. See, I don't know if I have an answer for that question, to be honest. Mm. And it is kind of – it's a kind of uh, question that I guess we could pose to a lot of the films coming out lately, you know, uh, for adults and children alike. You see Finding Dory. Yeah. A sequel for a film that was released 13 years ago. Mm. So – uh, the so your primary audience for a movie of this kind wasn't alive when the first one came out, or yeah. was so young that they have no memory of it anyway. Well, yeah, my you know my sister um, had actually just been born uh, when it ca- when Finding Nemo came out. We got it on DVD, and she just watched it again and again and again because she liked you know, the pretty fish and all of that in it. it but yeah. Because children like that also have the memories of yeah. fish. So it's like, you know, in the cognitive periods, like they, they like what they like and they'll watch it again and again and again and again and again. I think we, we, you know, I may have seen that film like a hundred times yeah. in passing of just, <laughs> just playing it again. Cause it's like the familiar thing. So it's like, but even then it's like, that's so far from her development now mm. of, of where she is in her life now. And then the subject matter of finding Dory isn't for the light of heart either. No. And I think it would be, it's, it's even like now I haven't seen finding Dory, but from everything I've, I've heard about it, it seems to grapple with far more adult subject matter than what Pixar usually grapples with. You know, mm. I guess um, Toy Story three was pretty uh, heavy in uh, in its themes, well, especially with their inferno moment near the end there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It was hard a... to get more hardcore than everyone linking hands and getting ready to jump into a fucking volcano. 
Mm. Yeah, there wasn't a dry eye in the cinema for that moment. No, but yeah, yeah. I just, I just because at the cinema where until very recently I worked, without fail, most of the people that were buying tickets for the Finding Dory movie were people my age, mm. couples or people just on their own who were my age and who had seen it when they were, you know, 12 or 13 and had loved it. Yeah. And, you know, wanted the, uh, wanted the payoff, wanted the catharsis of it all. It's like Independence Day, resurgence. Mm. Is that really... A, a sort of like a big summer blockbuster to draw in. I mean, look, I assume on some level they want to try and draw in a brand new audience, mm. not least because the ending is a shameless setup for a third um, part. We all wanted it. When we saw the first film, we thought, hey, you know what this needs? More Randy Quaid mm. in sequels. Yeah, but, but that he then he went loco. But twenty years down the track, yeah, that's what kind of what, what, what kind of market coverage are you looking at here? Exactly, like who 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 is this movie appealing to? Yeah, I mean it appeals to me, but like but, as a, like a but but as but purely as a nostalgia factor thing that. I loved the first movie and I'm really keen to see what the, the follow-up is. Mm. So, who, yeah. So, like, you know, who, like, like, so let's say you're 18 years old. You were not born when the first movie came out. Yeah. And what reason do you have to see it? Like, would you have yeah. seen it as a, you know, does your, is Independence Day then a film that like a, you know, an older brother or a father yeah, watches. Yeah, that has to be. Like, like, it's, like, it's something your family or some, like, mate that's super keen on film has, like, somehow shown you or, I mean, like, it, it, it can't be from the period where it just pops up on Netflix because Netflix didn't fucking exist back then. So you had to actually go to the video store, mm. see the picture and decide, I just give that a go. And at very and then, least, you're ten, it's 10 years old by then. Yeah, um, the time that you actually want to go and pick out movies. Mm. Yeah, so very, bring it back to it, so yeah, bring it back exactly. To BFG, like, like BFG, I'm not like entirely certain what the audience was for because you know you have a very sort of serious uh, negotiation of the the nature of loneliness and you know uh, a lack of parentage and. A sense of belonging or lack thereof in the world. You have serious themes of yeah, well, doing uh, doing inf- what's right, infanticide, like- and uh, everything that goes with that. But then you also have scenes of the queen farting so hard that she explodes a table. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I mean. Look, I, I get that that was all in the book, but it's it's just it's interesting. Like, you know, it's yeah. interesting to, to like to to go. 
yeah, but who's this for? Like, what's this? Like, it is like, it is a, it is a good film. It hits all the marks of being a good mm. film. Because I mean, I suppose, like, I, I saw this, I saw this film with my mother, mm-hmm. and she adored it. She thought it was an utterly charming and beautiful film. And to be perfectly frank, so did I. I was yeah. I was entirely won over by Rylance. Oh yeah. He's fantastic. And, and and honestly, if he wasn't in the movie, I don't think it would have worked. I don't think no. it would have even He does have that you know, even, softness. You know, the um, he can be he can look very hurt, um, and you want to empathise with him. Mm. It's certainly the first motion capture character since, well, basically Andy Circus and Gollum that I've actually felt like sympathising with. Mm. Well, that's always which really does play well to the BFG because he always was like, that's his character in a nutshell in the books and all of that. Mm. Like he was, you know, <laughs> he was a very elongated, gangly, sympathetic creature mm. with, you know, big Dumbo ears, which they deflated for this film. Not entirely, but yeah, I suppose they, yeah. they, 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 I think they wanted to, you know, play upon, Rylance's uh, appearance a bit more. Mm. Yeah, which very would, much which, which utilizing I, his which, looks. Which, which I wasn't adverse to because then by that same token, it it facilitated the emotional reality of the moment a lot greater, I think. Yeah. And it's certainly some of the best work I've seen because, I mean, in every single – uh, motion capture character, the big veto moment is do you believe the eyes? Mm. And this movie I actually did. I think it, I think that helps because of the size of him. Mm. That does they're play all, a big part yeah, in it. Yeah, exactly. Because you look at like Polar Express and all of that and because they're all human shaped so they're all like they're all, you know, Exactly the way they should be. Polar so it Express does. was also uh, good while earlier in the process. Oh, yeah. And, like, that's what, like, watching this, I was like, this kind of, like, seems like, you know, where they were coming from with Polar Express. Because, mm-hmm. like, the, the, the shading and the, and the textures and all that are very similar um, with where it was coming from. Um, so... Yeah, you look at that, and and they're very, you know, this because of their size and all of that. The eyes can look dead, whereas you it's can that put glassy, uncanny valley. Look. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Whereas, yeah, the less the less in the valley you are, because you have a big, friendly giant, um, the less you're going to uh, hit that uncanniness. But it was that kind of. Uh it very much was that ability to empathize with uh, Rylance as a character that actually made the movie succeed, I thought. And, you know, 
I I found myself kind of inspired of myself. I thought, well, this is kind of Spielberg on autopilot, just having a bit of fun doing, uh, you know, a fun movie to kind of take the edge off of doing Bridge of Spies. He brought his mate Mark Rylance along to have a bit of fun instead of doing. Well, he won an award for uh, an Academy Award for Bridge of Spies, didn't he? He got got the Oscar, and I mean Rylance is a famously difficult actor to get to be in movies, despite the fact that he's one of the single most celebrated British actors of all time. Mm. And uh, it seems that now he's suddenly finally gotten his taste for it because he was in Bridge of Spies, he was in BFG. He is in uh, Spielberg's next film, Ready Player One. And, oh, uh, he's, he's doing that. Yeah. Be, well, that gives you – And he's also be interesting. going to be in uh, Nolan's Dunkirk movie. So oh, cool. So now he's – I think he's now suddenly – I don't know. He seems, to be, he seems to be finding some enjoyment in the performing in films, either that or they uh, – went to every actor's weakness and they offered him a lot of money. Hey, it's, you know, who are we to disagree with that? I am certainly not one of them. <laughs> mm. I guess, I guess, yeah, with, um, this kind of reminds me of, um, Scorsese's, what was it Hugo? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This was the, the kid film that just doing for just doing for, it seems like in like enjoyment. Of just being able to spend time? Yeah, although to be fair, I feel like Hugo was Scorsese experimenting with a style of filming that he had never done before. Mm. And at the end of the day, Hugo was also mainly about one of Scorsese's primary uh, loves and obsessions in life, which is the preservation of film and film history. Yeah. Whereas BFG was kind of everything that that movie was, Spielberg had kind of already cut his teeth on with Tintin. Yeah. Well, is this, are we getting to the point where Spielberg is like he doesn't need to try anything else? Like he, he is a man. Look, I think I think most people who's had his that, ten years. If we're going to take back from uh, from the wind rises, he's had his ten years, and he he knows what he's doing, and he's just going through it how hmm. he wishes. I, I mean, in in a certain sense, I'd probably agree with you. Yeah. To be perfectly honest, because I mean, like you know, is this is this really a man that actually has? Anything left to prove? Mm. Yeah, because he can. Yeah, he can make films till the cows come home, and they'll still be. You know, it's you know, it's that um, you know the saying with pizza. You know, even bad pizza is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's you know that's that's Spielberg. Spielberg has a cow. You know, he does set. He sets the tone for every other director. Mm. You know, in Hollywood, this is this is the guy. You know, if you want, if you want a director who can bring out, who can who can get some great goddamn child actors and bring out the best performances in them, he's your guy. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Like, ET. Fantastic. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, ET like- 
Goonies. Any, yeah, I mean, if, any, if I mean, if anything, I mean, well, I mean, he didn't direct Goonies, but he certainly was. A, he certainly a, was a, part a, of a, it. A, a, a major force behind it. Mm. So it's just like I mean, he probably had like you know two ten year periods from about halfway through seventies to you know halfway through the eighties, and then from probably early nineties through the early noughts were like two just incredible runs mm. of films. And then, you know, from mid-2000s onwards, I mean, it's not like he hasn't done, you know, incredible work, but I think he's more sort of just basically done films that he wants to do. Yeah. not He hasn't felt compelled by the sake of legacy or uh, – a, a sort of a an obligation to prove himself, which is kind of how I think he felt back in sort of the the late eighties, early nineties, where he was mostly thought of as a populist director. Mm. To then see him starting to tackle more serious fare, you know, like Saving Private Ryan, like Schindler's List like Munich, you know, and, and things like that. And I think maybe like, it's, it's also just like, you know, he got older. Yeah. He got older. His his priorities as a human changed. And so in so doing your priorities as a filmmaker change, I, I have to assume it kind Mm. of mirrors that. So I think, it's. I mean, in in one sense, it's perfectly valid and it's in, in in indeed appropriate to judge this film on what has come in the past. But at the same time, for someone that has worked for as long as he has, and in such a varied uh, state, I, I think it's also counterproductive to try and judge this film by you know other other films in his mm. repertoire which you just know for a fact that like he has several repertoires that he can dip into at will yeah i get yeah it really does play into the fact that you know who is this who is this for and who is like who is this for it's just this these it's just interesting that this this film is, is out you know it came out fairly subtly surreptitiously yeah, yeah. there wasn't too much not much fanfare about it yeah but it, yeah it's just it's just come out it's a it's a nice it's you know it's a really nice film you know great performances uh really by everyone like i can't see too big a issue with anyone's performances in it no like everyone's just was, everyone's just doing great you know Damn good work, you know. Really, really spectacular work. Like Barnhill is fantastic. Ryland's mm. fantastic. You know, I want to see, I I want to see more of Barnhill. I want to see, like, this is her first foray into into film. I want to see how she's how she develops further. Mm. I mean, with you know Spielberg in her corner, I'm sure there'll be certain amount of shepherding, a certain amount of advice that I think, you know, if we do see her in future films, there'll be ones that are carefully chosen and considered. I don't think we're going to see her 
just jump on the bad bandwagon of being in the Spielberg film and taking the next uh, credit that comes her way. And she'll, well, be, she'll she'll be counselled better than that. Which let's I'm, hope uh, there's not a uh, Firestarter reboot. A what now? A Firestarter uh, remake. Uh, Drew Barrymore. Firestarter. Oh god! Oh, oh <laughs> god! Uh, yeah. <laughs> We no, can only see, hope. No, no. It, it was a different like, it, time. It seems like everyone would lose in that scenario. So I, I don't feel like uh, anyone stands to uh, <laughs> win from that. So, well, you know yeah. what? Um, all we can do is pray. Yeah. Basically, basically. But but honestly, you know what? At the end of the day, I really loved. I really actually loved this movie. Because I mean, yeah. sometimes sometimes all you want is something you can sit down and enjoy, and then stand up and walk away, and that's it. And yeah. this and this film, I think, is one of those. It's certainly not the greatest of you know, Roald Dahl ap- ap- adaptations that are out there. It's certainly not the worst, um, but. Also, it, it 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 just has moments of delicacy and sentiment that, to be quite frank, you know, took my breath away. Moments where Rylance made you forget that he was a, a figure of uh, ones and zeros, where you actually believed, partially due to the quality of the effects, but mostly due to the performance that. This is just a, a man that was there and was feeling conflicted and afraid and alone and old beyond time, but also childish. And that final shot of her shouting out to him, good morning, and hmm. the look of sheer joy on his face as the film closed. It, it Gorgeous. Got it got yeah. me. It really got me. Yeah, this yeah, I, this I, is a I, film. I, I stopped. I stopped. I stopped looking at it as I have to review this movie. I was just there as a spectator, mm. you know, and it was it was joyous that final moment. And so, I mean, on it's it's kind of hard. Like, do you judge a movie on on something holistic? Or do you, or do you judge it? Because I'm not sure. Because, because again, at the same time, like part of me is like, do I judge it as a critic, or do I judge it as the viewer, or should those two personae be intertwined? Because if I judge it on that final scene and my reaction to it, I loved it, and it's one of the best films I've seen this year. But is is that is that adequate? Yeah, it's is is what this film was enough of for what we for what we're wanting. Like when yeah. we're walking into it, like and is that something? So you know, you've you've gone at it very much as you know, very much as a as a viewer, as a as an enjoyer of of, of films and all of that. Whereas you know, I I I think I wanted more. I feel like I wanted more of the 
of the wackiness that Dahl brings to his writing where, mm. um, and more of the, the playfulness in, um, not in the performances cause they were, they were perfectly playful, but in the other aspects of the film I itself. Think, I think in the framing, he, it, it was let slightly down because I think I, I don't think Spielberg necessarily is a man that knows how to shoot comedy. Mm. Yeah. And that's, it's uh, in, Dahl in is inherently of, comedic. Yeah. In terms of verbal comedy, I mean, Spielberg can show something, you know, if if it's mm. a vis- if it's a visual gag or something like that, just you know, then he's all right. But and I know this sounds strange, but like flatulence almost isn't a visual gag. It's something that needs to be set up, and you you the gag isn't the flatulence so much as the reactions to it. And I think like when he when he played that scene in in uh, the in Buckingham Palace. He showed it happening to everyone, but he didn't show anyone else's reaction to it yeah. happening. I think, I think, in so doing, he he kind of scuttled the payoff a little bit. I think, it, I think, I think he showed it as a like he showed it as a plot point. Yeah, like it was something I mean, that it needed to happen, just because it was there mm. and it needs to happen. <laughs> But yeah, you're right. And it's like, this is, you know, this is Dahl basically taking down royalty by like bringing it down to the, you know, um, the lower stage, uh, the lower audience, mm. you know, as opposed to keeping it up. Like if we're going, uh, if we're going Shakespearean, the, he's playing down. So it's, and that's, you know, that's inherently funny. Yeah. You know, knocking the, the queen down to our level. That is inherently funny. So yeah, that's interesting that it was just not not played for that. It just it seems like that whole the whole scene of the the meal in the palace was basically brewing to that point, and then when he finally, you know, produces the bottle of his uh, fizzy beverage that you know makes everyone basically annihilate themselves with the farts. It didn't feel like the the coda to the scene that it should have been, mm. and even the build up and the execution. It just you knew it was going to happen, and then when it happened, you found it funny. But I honestly feel like, and I couldn't name anyone, but possibly another director could have played that for the build-up far more subtly and far better so that when the explosion actually happened, you would actually have a bona fide laugh-out-loud moment. Well, I just don't think it's a style of humour that Spielberg is actually comfortable with. No. Potty humour. I just don't think that's his – I don't think that's his style. Well, I think he he admires childlike wonder – Mm. But I don't know if he understands child humor. No. Yeah, he he likes he I think he has a great admiration for the ideas of what children 
hold, but not what the realities are. I think he more sort of appreciates the moment where children act more adult than adults do. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of where he gets his kicks from. Which you could probably look back to, you know, look back to his childhood, having to having to act more like a an adult mm. when he was a young boy. Exactly. I mean, like, I mean, the 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 obvious parallel to draw uh, from this movie and uh, other films in his uh, work is, of course, E.T., mm. which is the other movie written by Melissa Matheson. Yeah. And she uh, recently passed. Tragically passed, uh, you know, very shortly uh, before the film was uh, going to be released. Mm. And so you see a film like that, E.T., which is about Creature from Another World, a a child's uh, attempt to deal with those differing circumstances and in so doing becoming more adult in the process, learning from the creature, but also uh, teaching the creature, uh, you know, messages and narratives of their own. So all those same sort of uh, moments were there in ET as they were in BFG, but It's it's curious because E.T. is still the better movie. Well, I think that played more to the strengths of of a director who knew how to do sci sci fi a lot better than he does yeah. fantasy. Was that also a product of the fact that it was in the eighties? I think yeah. Well, that's that's probably got a lot to do with it too. So yeah, a sign of the times like that you know like if there's any period in history that spielberg has nailed in terms of film it's 80s american suburbia Mm. so and it's you know this is he's taking on english fantasy yeah which isn't like almost dickensian english fantasy yeah and i just wonder if you know was he was he was he actually was he actually taking a chance with this film that we are that we've neglected to mention purely because this is outside of his strengths and he still was able to pull off a film that is on par with his other films yeah i mean doesn't exceed anything but doesn't go below it no but that's the point this is a this is a good film yeah it's a good movie and i would i would uh, suggest that anyone who wants to see something like that should absolutely go and watch it. But yeah, I mean, I kind of feel like is because, um, you know, the producers of the film, Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall had been trying to adapt this film since the early 1990s. I mean, mm. Kathleen Kennedy, we of course now know is the president of Lucasfilm under uh, the Disney banner, but also this is a woman who has been a producing God since basically the eighties. 
where she produced E.T. and the Jurassic Park franchise and helped out with some of the latter-day Indiana Joneses and the Star Wars and everything, you know. So was there ever any doubt that they weren't going to ask Spielberg to direct that? Yeah. I kind of wonder, just, just you know, pie-in-the-sky moment here, if um, because they're mates and because they've already collaborated on one, uh, you know, novella to motion capture movie in Tintin, whether Jackson wouldn't have been a better fit as a director for this film. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been an interesting one. Purely just because as... Well, think of... Yeah, you think well, of you uh, at, the first Lord at, of the Rings. You look at Lord of the Rings, you understand the humour is, if not the same, it's at least in the same ballpark and you kind yeah. of... I mean, and, the, and, that, and I mean, Jackson, I mean, like, you know, as the story got more heavy, the movies got more heavy, but when, you know, stuff was like... Yeah, think of the party. He, yeah. The party he, at the start. Yeah, he knew how to film that kind of provincial English comedy. Mm. Yeah. I think, yeah it, I, think it, I think it came a lot more naturally to him. And it just, yeah, no, it just, it just occurs to me that it would have been so easy for uh, Spielberg to just pass the baton to him. Mm. Yeah. That's why, that's why I think, do we, yeah. You know, is, was Spielberg taking a chance with this going, well, yeah, I could have done it with, someone else, mm. but let's give, how about I give this a shot? Cause this, yeah, this doesn't seem, doesn't play within his regular wheelhouse. Not quite. It's, it's certainly the most sort of like uh CG heavy movie he's ever done. Mm. But, um, it's kind of just, I'm actually just looking up, you know, like what was Jackson doing that he couldn't have done, you know, uh, this movie instead? And my my obvious uh, guess at the time was that uh, Jackson would have been working on the uh, sequel to Tintin because the agreement that they had when they first started working on those was Spielberg would direct and Jackson will produce the first one and then they would basically swap roles mm. for the sequel. But basically when, what I'm looking up at the moment is that all I'm getting is that Jackson is working on a secret project as of June 2016. That's – well, that's an exciting prospect. Mm. So, you know – who absolutely knows what that might be. And that's from slash film, which I take as a pretty rock solid, you know, uh, source. Mm. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. Mm. <sighs> but I mean, I'd be, I'd be actually intrigued on that to see how Jackson handles Tintin too. Yeah, and what yeah. The, and, will and, he and bring just in what the? Because it'll be the same programming, same actors, same 
production style and absolutely everything. The only thing that will be different is the direction. Yeah. And that, see, that, that'll be very interesting because you've, with other films, you can't break it down into, yes, this is the only thing we're changing. Yeah. Like there's always so much, so many other uh, factors that will, um, that will change with it all. So that will be, yeah, I guess putting two, it'd two directors up yeah, head to head. It'd be interesting going back after, I mean, and Lord knows when the second Tin Tin will come out, whether it's in two years or five years or something like that. But way, way down the track, it'd be interesting going back and actually sort of uh, after that came out, having a study of that and trying to figure whether, like, look at the difference between the Spielberg Tintin and the Jackson Tintin. See what the differences were. See whether maybe any of those line up with uh, what we're saying tonight. Yeah. I think it would be a pretty pretty good case study to put them head to head. Mm, for sure. Yeah. With that, I think we've reached the, uh, the end of this one. Do you have any, so. any final things to say about the BFG? Only that, uh, you know what, I mean, I found it intriguing. I found it mesmerizing in the moment. Look, it's hardly going to stick in my mind the way that like some other Spielberg films have, but like for uh, the experience itself, as I was sitting in the cinema viewing it, it was an absolute joy. And Rylance was, you know, transcendent in the role. And we are getting to the point, you know, with uh, CGI characters where I'm frankly unable to discern the difference between them and real life actors. Yeah. It's yeah. It's definitely reaching, reaching that point. And it's, that's a pretty exciting thing for Hollywood. Mm, a pretty cock solid segue into announcing what our film for next week is going to be. Yeah. So we're going to be tacking on uh, uh, Warcraft. The, uh, the film by Duncan Jones, his, uh, his passion Zowie project. Zowie Bowie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I loved his work in Moon. And, uh, and yeah, Warcraft is, is, is going to be an interesting one to talk about. Mm. I think we can, uh, we should have a few things to discuss about the, the movie itself, the production. Ten years this movie's in oh, basically so been, basically been in uh, some stage of uh, pre-production before you know Duncan got his hands on it. Sam Raimi was meant to originally be doing it when Jones finally did it. They were in post for twenty months. It's a long time, which is a yeah. long ass time to be in post, but. Uh, they were tackling, you know, uh, a new way of filming uh, with this uh, race of orcs. They wanted it entirely to be motion capture, basically Avatar style, and to they wanted it to be, uh, you know, flawless between human and CG. And I guess we'll find out exactly how close they came to succeeding in that 
next week. Yeah. Next week, yeah, we, yeah. There's a lot, lot to talk about with that one. Mm. So also, yeah, be you good know, to- uh, you know, video game adaptations haven't exactly been. They don't have the best <laughs> track record. They don't have the best track record, but I mean, we've got this one, which you know, budget is incredible. Pedigree, you would argue, is pretty damn good. And then you've also you know, got the promise of other movies in the future. You've got Ubisoft's adaptation of uh, Assassin's Creed with uh, yeah. Fastbender in the title role. You've got, you know, people like Marion Cotillard, Jeremy Irons in supporting roles. You've got Kurzel who directed Fastbender in the Scottish play, mm-hmm. the film adaptation of that, which was certainly one of the most beautiful and strange films that I ever saw last year. So you're seeing a certain uh, shift on the video game film front towards uh, a more professional uh, Mm. viewpoint. You're seeing people of more serious pedigrees deciding to try and take them on. Yeah, and in far less of a uh, just doing it for the paycheck sort of Mm. way to actually want to do these things. Yes, well, I mean, with uh, Duncan Jones, you definitely, you know, got the whole thing that this is a guy that actually played WoW on the yeah, rig. Yeah, played WoW, you know, the first three Warcrafts. You know, you know. Knew, knew the lore back to front. Yeah. And, uh, you know, developing this was a passion project for him. But, you know, by the same token, uh, Zack Snyder would argue that uh, he knows – DC more back to front and yeah. uh, doing Batman v Superman was a passion project for him. And we saw how that turned out. So I guess we'll, uh, we shall reserve judgment until, until we see the film. Yeah. Um, as always, uh, dear listeners, uh, you can find us on various social media platforms. Uh, find all of those links on our website from the silver screen.com. Um, take the time to uh, review us on iTunes, it absolutely helps us uh, rise up in the ranks um, and reach more listeners. Um, it's really helpful to us. Um, yeah, it would be really appreciated if you uh, took that time. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, next week, Warcraft, I'll uh, go for the uh, the Horde or the Alliance. We'll, uh, we'll find out where we, uh, where we sit with it all. Until next time. Toodaloo. <coughs> the man, uh, congrats on reaching it to 10. <coughs> I don't know whether you'll get through any more than that. What? <laughs> <laughs> it's 10 episodes already? <laughs> Yeah, it's 10 episodes, man. 10? We got there. I didn't think oh. we'd make it. T- whole 10. Yes. I can't keep I can't keep counting them on my damn fingers now. <laughs> I'm going to use my toes. Woo!